Parabylan, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Why do you think economic illiteracy is so prevalent? Why do we keep hearing the same bad arguments in one form or another, despite them being refuted a century and a half ago by the Austrians? Yeah, that is a very good question. And I mean, if you recall, even Henry Hazlitt writes in his book, uh, Economics in One Lesson, that few things have been so misunderstood as economics, even though you have the, like these very, very simple things like there are trade-offs. Like if you don't, if you do one thing, you can't do the other things and there are costs to everything, uh, things like that. I guess in, in a sense, people don't want to see it. Uh, so, so that's part of it, uh, that they simply, they, they want to have a world of abundance rather than a world of scarcity. So they, they, they prefer to view the world like that. Of course, that's not how they act in their personal lives. It's not like we try to spend the same dollars over and over again. <clears throat> I mean, some if we could, we would, I'm sure, but we can't. Um, so in their actions, they're they're consistently confirming basic economics. But when they're voting, they're voting for the promise of sort of getting rid of of the the limitations that economics tells us about. Uh, and and I I guess they're they're sort of wanting to be part of that dream, and and it it might seem like the world is too limiting and maybe even cold um, if you just can't get everything you like. And and of course, I mean in 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 a religious sense, I mean take Christianity, the 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 point of the world is is to move on really to heaven where there is no scarcity. So. <laughs> <laughs> In, in a sense, that's what we're aiming for, right? And if we could get it right now, that's better. So in, in a sense, denying economics is just proof of time preference, right? That, <laughs> that we would rather have abundance now rather than after we die. Um, but it is, I mean, you're right. It's, it's, it's very strange that even though people study economics, they still keep making these mistakes. Uh, and it's, it's very frustrating, but it also means that, hey, we got something to talk about. Uh, we got something to tell the world. Yes, sir. To what extent do you think education may have a role in this illiteracy? And uh... yeah, unfortunately, I would say I think education does have a role in this. Uh, I mean, the obvious role they should be playing is to, to get rid of it and teach people how to think about the economy properly, so that they don't they don't make these mistakes. What they're actually doing is probably something else. Um, I saw a study referenced some years ago where where they had two cohorts uh, where both took the same economics exam, basically, but none of them had studied economics. And then they followed up and had them take an economics exam a, a year or six months later, where one half of them had taken course a course in economics and the other had not. And it turns out that the, the the people who had not taken economics, they did better than the people who had taken economics. So this is, I mean, it tells you something about the what, what an economics education is about and what they're actually teaching. I, I haven't seen any any attempts to reproduce this study. So I'm I'm not sure if it was sort of a fluke, but it, it is a, a funny story, right? It, it, it tells you that economics education might actually make you worse in economics. Uh, and, and and in that sense, I I think I think it 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 is a problem, but I think even if if they would teach it 
what they're actually teaching is wrong, right? Because we're focusing so much on the math and on equilibrium and things like that. So in a sense, all of economics education today, and if not all of mainstream economics, whether micro or macro, is it implicitly assumes that central planning is not only possible, but is better than the market. Because the market is wasteful and you you often hear people saying, oh, they're, they're advertising so much as a waste of money. Well, maybe it is in, in one case, but overall advertising is really about uh, informing consumers of the promise of the product and that there is a product at all so that they can expand uh, the scope of the market that they're, that they're addressing, which means they can get uh, production down to a lower average cost. So it's, it's actually beneficial for consumers. That's why consumers buy those products. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it, it's not really, but we we tend to think of it in, in these senses, and 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 even economists themselves make these mistakes, probably because they're they're fo focusing on the math and they're focusing on on sort of the the comparative statics that we're teaching in in economics courses, and that's that's highly problematic because it's, it's giving everybody the wrong idea, whereas what they should do is think logically step by step through people actually acting and not thinking of people as sort of subsets of variables that you can just put in an equation. Right. So you mentioned Christianity before and people not wanting to see it. I do think that one has to concede that the left is great at marketing their ideas. And I suppose we could learn something from them in that regard. I'm curious what you think is a good strategy for popularizing these ideas and moving in the direction of that ideal stateless society. Wow, yeah, that's a that's a different question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's a spreading the ideas is is one thing because I think there's a a large fraction of people, maybe not the min the majority, but still a a number of people who are out there and. They want to be left alone, and they don't want anybody to to boss them around. That sort of thing, and and they might even be well educated on the ideas, but they probably think they're alone. So I mean, one thing is to to do what Albert J. Nock uh, suggested, I think originally, to speak to this remnant, to these people who have these ideals, but they think they're alone because they're the odd man in in, in the in the the school or in in their community and whatever else. But there are actually thousands, if not millions, of people who have these ideals, and we're not a threat to anyone. Uh, it's not a threat saying that please don't bother me. It's not a threat to say please please don't steal my money. <laughs> that can't be in in any sense be considered a threat. But you can tell now that. Uh, the political class really has started to think of libertarianism as a threat because now they're they're sort of using libertarian as as a derogatory term uh, and trying to paint people they don't like in in libertarian terms. Uh, and I think that the point of that is is to scare people away from libertarianism because to them the political class libertarianism is of course a threat because if people would just turn their backs on them then they have nothing. So. That, that is a problem. But it, I think in terms of getting back to your actual question, uh, in changing society and, and getting, uh, well, having real change, I think that is a matter of setting a good example. It's not really about saving the world. I, I wrote a bunch of columns on this back in, well, I guess it's not 20 years ago, but arguing that 
libertarians in general have this problem that we are individualists, but we think about spreading our ideas in a collectivist manner. So we we try to, we want to save the world and we say unless we abolish government for the whole U.S. or the North North America or the world, I can't be free. Well, that's one heck of a threshold to be free in your life, right? And 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 the problem here is that. Of those 8 billion people or whatever we are right now, most of them don't want the freedom or they don't understand freedom or whatever it might be, but they're not willing to embrace it, which means we don't have the right to put, shove it down their throats. We have a, a defensive right, of course, to say that they can't shove their crap down our throats, but we shouldn't respond by saying, well, this is better, so I'm going to th- shove that down your throat. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So what we should do is, is turn our backs on, on, on the crap out there and set good examples. And I mean, I'm a subscriber to, uh, to the ideas of agorism, uh, the Sam Ed- Edward Konkin's idea of counter-economics, that y- your duty as a, as a radical libertarian is to remove as much as possible of your economic and other activities from the realm of the state. So do things that are not regulated or work in the black or gray market or or what have you. I mean, stop feeding the beast, but also stop living on on sort of the beast's terms uh, and thereby set a good example for your neighbors, your friends, your family, and so forth. So you're a professor of entrepreneurship. How do you teach entrepreneurship and how can a correct understanding of how the economy works help entrepreneurs be successful? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, in one sense, you can't really teach entrepreneurship because it is uncertainty bearing and figuring out how to make a better future. Um, and well, whoever is in academia and, and tries to teach you that is, is probably a fraud because we're in academia because we can't do that, right? So (laughs) that's that's the sad truth. Uh, But I think you can teach how to think about the role of the entrepreneur correctly. And that way you can help people avoid a lot of the mistakes. Uh, So I I usually do it in terms of just basic economic economic thinking according to the Austrian school. But where, where does value come from? Well, value is really in the eyes of the consumer using the product. So your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out how to serve consumers to the best way possible. And if you serve them really well, so that's what you produce for them is a really high value in their eyes, then to them, it would be definitely worth it, maybe even a bargain to pay what might be considered a high price because they get so much out of it. So a high, high price in terms of dollars is really a low price from their perspective, right? And then your job is to try to keep production costs below that price that you think you can charge. So it's not about creating something and then going to the market, putting a price on it based off of your cost. No, it's about choosing the cost based off of the value that you think you're producing for others. So that sort of thinking, I think, will will probably avoid several of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make. And I mean, most, most entrepreneurs fail most of the time, I usually say. Because uh, there are less than 50% of, of entrepreneurial startups that survive five years. Uh, and, and many of them, I think, are making this mistake. Some of them are, are, are simply trying to just not have a boss. So whatever makes their ends meet, that, that's perfectly fine. They don't, they don't need to start the next Facebook or something like that. So, uh, But even making your ends meet and having an okay salary from your business is not that easy. 
and and you have to realize that it's it's not a hobby that pays you. It's actually a job. So you are you're paid for what you contribute into the economy, that is to your customers. So as soon as you realize that, you're going to be able to avoid uh, big problems. And I think that is that sort of thinking is really important when running a business. And of course, understanding business cycles and things like that will also help you, but it's it's not as obvious and it's not going to affect how you how you act every day as an entrepreneur, whereas the correct mindset or the correct perspective will. Hmm. I'd now like to get into the weeds of the theory and talk a bit about the primacy of theory in interpreting data. Why does theory matter and why is it important that theory precedes observation um, and the formation of conclusions based on raw data? Well, in the social sciences, right? So in, in, in the natural sciences, it's, it's different, different, right? Because when we're talking about uh, dead things, as is pretty much the case for all natural sciences, well, if you study the gravitational pull on a rock, it's going to be the same, or at least we assume it's going to be the same every time you measure it. So you can just measure it over and over again, and then you figure out that, oh, look at that, it's, it's the same gravitational pull, and then we can measure it on other dead things, and we can compare uh, the mass and the weight and whatever, and, and figure out that, oh, there's a constant gravitational pull. It's not going to change. In social uh, situations, in the social world, so to speak, there are no constants because everything is a result of human action. And we don't think the same way about anything really over and over again. Uh, we might have principles, we might have values and things like that, but they also change. Um, and we see and understand different things. So, I mean, one, one example uh, might be that if you wanna, wanna uh, test the gravitational pull on rocks, you put them on a cliff and you push them down and you measure what is the impact, how how long does it take for them to fall down or whatever. Well, you can do the same thing with people, like right? put the people on the cliff and push them down and measure how, 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 how long will it take them to hit the ground and what is the impact and things like that. The problem with people is that they're not going to behave like rocks. So the first person you might be able to push down, the second person is going to either punch you really hard or run away or something like that, right? And even if you take the same person, let's say he survives, and you bring that same person up to the cliff again, and you put him there, and then you're ready for your experiment, that guy is not going to just stand there like he did last time, because he has learned that this guy's going to push me down. I don't want that. So... I'm going to defend myself and or what, run away or whatever it is. So even, even if we have different people in the same situation, they're not going to act and react in the same way. If we have the same person over and over in the repeated experiment, it's not going to be the same. So we wouldn't expect people to act uh, in the same constant manner. And we also wouldn't expect whatever is the outcome of people's actions to be exactly the same. So when we're studying a society and, and, and the economy and, and things like that, what we're studying is, is really outcomes of, of people's actions in, in, in concert. So we talk about the price system, how prices of goods happen, uh, where resources get allocated, business cycles, unemployment, all of these things. Well, all of those are, are outcomes of human action and interaction. And people learn People see different things. People understand things differently. 
they might understand the same fact differently in different uh, different times. So you have to have a theory before you can even understand what to, what to study. And very often, many of these things aren't even observable. So a good example would be a company, a business firm. What is that? Well, it's not, nothing you can observe. I mean, an alien could come to Earth but could never understand what a business firm is. He could, he could see an office building and see people entering at 9 a.m. and leaving at 5 p.m., maybe leaving for a little while over lunch. But he would never understand why they go there. He would never understand why some of them would try to go there as late as possible, why some of them would stay late. Uh, but understanding that it's a business firm is makes it very different. But that's something that we have. We, we sort of have a a common or shared understanding of it, but it doesn't exist in the physical world. But we act as though it does exist, right? So we have these unobservables that not only are the outcome of how we act, but we act with respect to them, right? So, so someone might buy a computer, but we don't buy a computer simply because of the, the performance or size or whatever might, might be your fancy, but also based on the brand and our expectations of the brand. So many people buy an iPhone or, or an Apple computer because it is by Apple. They have no idea who produced it. They have no idea who the guy is who sells it to them. They just have an, an interpretation of what Apple means to them. And that's why they buy Apple, even if it costs them an arm and a leg, which it usually does with Apple, right? So. These things are super important in the in society and in the economy. And we can't study those things unless we already have an understanding for what it is. So in the in the physical natural science world, we can collect data at random or collect all the data that we that we can find. And then we can run regressions on them and statistically try to figure out what is happening and what are the constants and what are the, the correlations between things, right? Well, in the social world, what data do you collect in order to understand what is going on? Because it depends on when you collected, it depends on where you collected, it depends on on what types of things you collect data on, and what you can't capture in data, like the business firm. You you, you can of course co collect say the accounting profits for the business firm or investment amounts and things like that, but you can't capture with the meaning of money, because that doesn't exist. You can capture the numbers, but so you already need some sort of a vague understanding of these things, as we we do as humans. Um, but that also means that, well, any data analysis in, in the social sciences is really based on first a selection of what data are important to understand this phenomenon. That's, that requires theory, right? and an interpretation of what those data points are. Because it's not, it's usually the case that we're trying to study something that is, well, you can't really measure that, so you measure something similar. Well, in order to measure something similar, a proxy, you need a theory of what it is. So many, many things like salary, for instance, is, is typically a, a function of someone's ability in an economic sense anyway. Well, how do you measure ability? Well, you don't. In, in most studies, you use education level as a proxy, which is a, not a very good proxy, sure. But how do you know that education level has something to do with someone's ability? Well, you already have a, a, an understanding for what education does and what is, what is the intention of education.
So theory in everything really comes first. It's very strange to us in the natural sciences use data to try to verify or falsify theory, because theory is the basis for how you collect the data. So it, it becomes circular, right? So you can't really do that. You can use data to illuminate what actually happened in a certain situation. Like you already have a theory of the business cycle and you can see that, well, during the depression, there was definitely a bust and it was an extensive one. Okay, what happened? What exactly happened? Well, you have the theory, so you can look at whatever variables your theory says are important and see, okay, does, no, first, does this tell us more about what caused the depression and what else might be missing? So if, if the theory tells us that, well, this should happen and that didn't happen, well, that's just an indication that we missed something. Something else had an impact too. And, and society and really social phenomena are so complex and I mean, they depend on anything that affects people's actions, which could be anything, right? I mean, if people, people might, uh, might seek to get the gold at the end of the rainbow. Well, no one has ever found gold at the end of the rainbow, but suddenly you see people running around because there's this rumor that someone has found gold at the end of the rainbow. How are you gonna explain this sudden change unless you understand people's actions to begin with? Right. There's so many random uh, influences on people's actions that you, you need a theory to just first tease out what the heck is going on. Uh, so, so you can't have theory come after data in social science. It's simply impossible. So I agree with all that you said about social sciences, but I actually disagree about your take on the natural sciences. I would think, uh, following Karl Popper, that theory comes before data or observation in the natural sciences as well. So if you collect like, you know, a lot, let's say you collect all your observations from uh, for like 50 years, and then you submit it to the Royal Society, you're not going to get rewarded for that. No, the Royal Society, you know, they might have it as an artifact or something, but like, it doesn't explain anything. And you mentioned about, um, so nobody's ever, ever observed the core of the sun, but we act as if, you know, we know what's happening inside the core. And uh, nobody's really even observed um, Einstein's general theory of relativity that, uh, I mean, we have observations that um, have failed to falsify the theory. So they're in accordance with that theory. But, you know, they're not really verifications of the theory because, uh, again, following Popper, I think that you can't really um, certainly prove a theory uh, forever. Uh, it can always be falsified. So I would agree with uh, all that he said about the social sciences, but I would make similar arguments about natu na the natural sciences and say that you know, the same way you said, okay, theory comes before observation. That's the same way for natural sciences and that all observation is theory laden, as Karl Popper would say. Yes. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I agree in, in practice, you, you develop hypotheses based on the theory and then you try to figure out how to falsify them or you support them with data or whatever it is. And, and there, but the diff, main, main difference is really that you can falsify the theory in the natural sciences, but you can't falsify theory in the social sciences using data. And there's, there's more to the story too, because it's, it's not really as clear cut as, as usually 
how, how we teach methodology for the natural sciences. So if you talk to philosophers of, of science, they're not really Popperians anymore because how you formulate an, a hypothesis determines whether it can be falsified too. And of course, no uh, empirical test is going to be able to falsify completely what what the the hypothesis attempted to capture. So you can always say that well, that was because of this, or was because of that, or or this is just a fluke, or whatever it might be. So it's it's not as clear cut. Uh, so you're right, data in in the natural sciences are also not as obvious as which we tend to assume that they are. But the difference is that there are such facts and we can collect those facts whether or not we have a theory of what those facts are uh, so they can just be implications of simple observations in in some sense i mean that was probably going back a long time right so we, we don't do that anymore but in the social world we start with a personal understanding and then we sort of in, in a sense we're 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 taking our understanding and we're applying it on everybody else saying that, well, we're all acting in a certain way. And then from there we can derive truth, at least in the Misesian view, that's how you would do it. One of my favorite tweets, uh, tweets of yours is when you say, quote, to want to make a difference in society, yet not in a way that can earn you profits really means you want to change things for others without asking for their approval, end quote. That's brilliant. Then someone replied, profits are proof of value. Can you address the popular desire to, especially, especially among young people, to do something good for society or make a difference, quote unquote? Um, what's the rational way to do that? Well, the rational way is to, to uh, create a for-profit organization. Uh, and the, and the, the simple way to explain that is simply that, well, the reason is what we talked about before. The reason you earn profits is that you provide uh, your customers with so much value that they would be more than happy to pay the price. And if you can uh, produce this at the cost that is lower than the price that they are willing to pay, then you have cr created more value than other entrepreneurs thought was possible because you could sort of get the resources for cheap. Uh, and, and that's how the market works, right? Where uh, entrepreneurs are competing with each other for resources based on what the value that they think they're gonna be able to produce. Uh, and, and whoever buys the resources does so under the impression or the expectation that they're going to make profits because they think that they can produce more value. And other the entrepreneurs who don't buy them, well, they don't think it's worth it, meaning they can't produce enough value. Right. So, so the whole economy is really focused on producing for consumers. Uh, and then, of course, you have regulations and all kinds of manipulations uh, but but leaving that aside, that's how the economy works. Typically, though, we, we tend to think of it as selfish, and we tend to think of seeking profit as, as, as sort of a, a moral vice, uh, rather than as being a, a proof of service, which is really, it really that's really what it is. Uh, so I, I think now the, the biggest uh, sort of specialization within entrepreneurship studies is social entrepreneurship. That is entrepreneurship without making profits, which doesn't make any sense at all to me. But but a lot of people are really interested in that because they want to do good and they don't want anything for themselves because that makes them good people. Well, they don't understand the implications of that sort of reasoning, right? And that's what you're getting at. Um, because what they're doing then, if, if I want to create, say, homes for the homeless, 
well, I can create a lot of homes for them, but I'm, am I creating the homes that they want and the homes that they would trade their homelessness for and that they can afford and whatever else? No, I'm producing the homes that I think they should have. I mean, there's that is definitely more selfish than trying to provide them with what they want and then getting some value back in return, right? And the problem is also, it's not only that it, that it is selfish and you're focusing on yourself, the problem is also that it's highly inefficient. If you as an entrepreneur would try to provide housing for homeless people or education for the poor, or whatever it might be that, that, that you think is, is super important, and you do that in a way that you can cover the costs, well, in that case, you have created more value for society overall. That's a good thing, right? That means you have used scarce resources in a way that creates more value than others thought they were able to do. In a social business or social entrepreneurship, in this sort of not-for-profit type organization, you're asking donors to cover the cost. And then you are really spending donors' money on a project that you think should be done in a certain way. So donors are consuming rather than producing because that's what they're doing. They get some personal benefit from saying, oh, I helped, I helped the this uh, initiative against homelessness, or I, I spent money for the soup kitchen or whatever it might be, right? Or I sent a lot of shoes to Africa or all of these things. That, that's their own satisfaction. So it's consumption, it's not production. It's not a, an efficient way of using society's resources, but it might be a good way for them to use their resources. And the social entrepreneur themselves uses res those resources, these other guys' resources, in a way that they themselves think is the best way, but not those who actually are the supposed beneficiaries. So there, there's a necessarily waste in, involved because you don't get the feedback necessary from, from the people you're trying to help. Um, and you might not even ask them. Sometimes you ask them, but any entrepreneur knows that what people say and what people actually end up doing, there might be some correlation, but there's that's not a whole lot, right? So. Many entrepreneurs selling for, uh, doing it for profit, they often try to involve consumers uh, and ask them, how much do you think this would be worth if I would produce this and compared to that, right? And they get all these answers and then they produce it and they go to the same person and say, hey, I got it. Uh, so give me the 50 bucks or whatever you said that was worth. And they're like, uh, nah, I don't think so, right? So, so that's sort of the uncertainty of being an entrepreneur. Uh, and in social entrepreneurship, you don't give a damn about that. So, so they, in a sense, you could you could stretch it even further, saying that they cause harm because they 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 are doing something that is wasteful with society's overall resources, and they're providing people with goods and services that they would not otherwise have chosen to get. That's not necessarily a good thing, and it doesn't mean that I'm against, say, emergency relief or something like that. I would I would definitely do that, and I want to help people too. But I don't think creating a, an organization that does this is, is, is not, a, not a good idea. And you have plenty of examples of, of this with, say, people starting orphanages uh, in poor countries like Haiti or something like that, where the effect is that there are more or orphans. It's not because parents die. It's because parents who are poor, they realize that their kids have a better future at the orphanage and being adopted by some other uh, couple in the West 
then they can provide to, for their kids. It doesn't mean they don't love their kids. It's, the reason they give them up to the orphanage is because they love their kids, right? And that's a better future for the kids. So suddenly you see a lot more orphans or orphans, I should say, right? Because they have parents. It's just the parents pretend they don't exist. Um, so that's not creating a that's not creating a solution to the problem because there are orphans, right? And you, instead you're creating much greater problem because because now there seems to be a whole lot of more orphans and maybe the real orphans don't get the help they need. I want to switch gears a bit and ask you something I'm very curious about. So you're a writer at and co-founder of a Swedish blog at Kospaya.se. What was Kospaya and can you talk a bit about its significance? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, not a historian, but I, I know a little bit. Um, and we, we picked the name for it, which is probably not, not the best way of marketing a website because no one has heard of it, but there is a Wikipedia article. <laughs> so you can, whoever's interested can check that out. Um, but Kospaya was, was sort of a, a, I guess you could call it a republic or a country or something like that for some 460 years, something. Um, in Italy, not very far from Rome, um, and they were forgotten. So when when the big emperors and the pope and whoever else they had had their kingdoms and 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 their realms, they forgot to claim this little little piece of, of land. And I think they they mostly uh, their their biggest industry was producing tobacco or something like that. And and they lived peacefully and they traded with their neighbors and everything like that. So no one really bothered them and, and no one cared about them and, and no one occupied them or anything like that for almost half a millennium. Uh, and they prospered just as much as anybody else. And of course, they didn't, they didn't have taxes or regulations. They didn't have a government on their shoulders. I mean, so, so they, they kept to themselves and they, they, they were basically... I don't know if they were anarcho-capitalists necessarily, but they were sort of market anarchists or or community anarchists or or whatever. But but producing, trading, hanging out, being being just friendly folk, I suppose, uh, solving their own conflicts, having their own sense of justice, uh, trading with other countries, all of these things, um, right under the very noses of of all these imperialist kings and and the Pope and and all of this stuff. Uh, until one day, of course, one of them realized that, hey, wait a minute, what about these tobacco farmers? Who rules them, right? And someone has to rule them, and then then they were screwed. But it took many, many, many generations before someone noticed them. That's fascinating. I don't know if it's uh, anarcho, if if it was an anarcho-capitalist society exactly, but I've not heard a lot of people cite Kaspaya as an example of uh, the theory applied in practice. So. I want to ask your thoughts on Javier Mille, who could potentially be the next Argentinian president. His interview with Tucker Carlson uh, with over 400 million views now could be one of the largest exposures of libertarian ideas in a long time. So what do you think of it? Well, the interview itself, I'm not super impressed by, I guess. Um, and I, I don't know if they... If they cut out some of the more radical stuff. I mean, I've seen some clips from Argentinian television with uh, Millet where he where he says that the central bank is a cartel and needs to be abolished and, and things like that, uh, which I wholeheartedly support. Um, 
he didn't say anything like that when he talked to Tucker Carlson. Instead, he was sort of, he seemed much more, I don't know, mellow and less radical than, than I, I've seen him elsewhere. Uh, so, and, and I, as far as I understand, I mean, I never met him, so I, I, I don't know him. Uh, but as far as I understand, he's sort of a Rothbardian, um, pretty radical anarcho-capitalist who wants to implement the, the gold standard and and uh, at least cut down governments by an enormous fraction, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, and that doesn't really come across in, in Tucker Carlson's interview, I think. In in, in that interview, he's, he's talking about many other things. And... Um, and then Tucker even introduces him as, as a libertarian, not in the American sense, like Cato, but in the sense where he wants to maximize freedom or something like that. It's, it's also a little confused. So <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I, I thought it was a fun jab at Cato, but but um, that, that's sort of almost like a cultish joke. <laughs> but it, it's, it seems like he, he seems like a good example of how actual radical freedom might be an option when people finally finally get in this this sort of desperate situation as they are in in Argentina where they've had high inflation for a very long time a lot of corruption the state is everywhere and a lot of people are bureaucrats and they're living well off of doing basically nothing and making a lot of money whereas real people uh, they struggle to make ends meet uh, and, and there are plenty of poor people and they still need to pay taxes for these uh, these parasites who, who are in the bureaucracy and don't do anything at all. Um, so of course you're gonna have problems with inequality and, and that sort of thing. And the inequality in Argentina is primarily be between uh, government people and, and of course whoever is really close to government in, in sort of a corporatist way and regular people who are the, the poor. Um, and it, I guess that is fertile ground for for the the ideas of freedom, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, it, it shows that people actually appreciate getting rid of this stuff when it's when it becomes obvious that it's too much of a burden. People want to get rid of it, and as libertarians, what what we do is say that it is a burden. It's economic, it's social, it's cultural, uh, it's moral all of these things but people usually don't realize it so i mean it's in that sense it's hopeful whether whether he will be successful or first elected and then if we will be successful that's a completely different story and some have have hypothesized that he might be, get elected but won't be able to do a whole lot because the whole government is against him which should be expected i think but is that a reason for him not to run and not to use those ideas when he's running no, I don't think so. I mean, he should be planting a, a lot of seeds in in the population overall, uh, and maybe direct them to read books and, and learn about economics and learn about freedom. Interesting. So I told Twitter that we would be having this conversation and asked if anyone had any questions for you. We received quite a few replies, so I thought uh, it would be fun to have you answer some of them if you're down. Mm -hmm, sure. Let's do it. Um. Okay, one sec. Logan asks, of all the commonly held economic fallacies, which is the greatest impediment to economic literacy in the modern Western world? Okay, the greatest fallacy.
Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, one, one of the fundamental ones um, is probably value subjectivity, that people consider value to be objective. I mean, that's a, that's part of the reason why, why economics went through the big revolution in the 1870s. And, and one of the big issues with, say, Marxism, which still uh, subscribes to that idea. I mean, Marx really took the ideas of Adam Smith and others and, and continued uh, theorizing on how it's really the cost put into something that makes the value of it. Uh, and being a, a, a workers movement sort of guy, um, he said that, no, it's not any cost, it's labor, it's only labor. And that's hence the labor zero value. And people tend to think of, of, of value as objective. And when they make this mistake, they, they, they act in very strange ways too. So, I mean, you have these, these many of, of these people who should know better and who unfortunately are broadcasting their ignorance. <laughs> like, like in the tech se sector, you usually have, when there's a, a new gadget uh, released, um, they, some of them, they take it apart and they look at what are the components in this thing. And then they say, oh, look at this. The real value of the, this this gadget is $185, but they're selling it at $250. So there's a lot of markup and a lot of basically exploitation. Well, I mean, this completely misses the point because value the value of the gadget is its use for the consumer. It doesn't matter what it includes. So whatever components are used, no, that's that's a choice by the producer to produce the actual value to the consumer and not the other way around. It doesn't have value because you use certain components in it. It might mean that the producer will not be willing to sell it below a certain price, but that's something they should have thought of before, right? So, so we tend to, just because we don't re realize this, we tend to think of any, everything in the economy backwards, which is a huge problem. Joshua asks, political policy proposals that include raising the corporate tax rate remain quite popular. Who ultimately pays these taxes? Business owners, employees, or customers in form of higher prices or lower quality of services and products? Yeah, that's not as straight as straightforward a question as people might think, because very often it is claimed that, well, those taxes are just pushed onto consumers. So that just raises prices. Well, no, and yes. Because it's no simply because we already talked about how how the price of a good is really determined by the value consumers see in it. And the value of the good is not higher because there's a tax on production or the tax on profits. So that's not the case. I mean, many businesses will try to cover this cost by raising the price, but that's just, they, they can do so only for as long as consumers actually think that price is worth paying. So maybe they, maybe they set too low a price before it could have charged a higher price. Um, what it will do, however, is they, it will lower the profitability of the business, which means there will be, at least in the longer term, less investment in business and production. So that in turn means that there will be fewer types of goods and probably lower quantities of goods for consumers. And that means, in turn, that the prices of those goods, because there are fewer in the market, will be higher, because only those who value them really highly will, will buy them. So in that sense, higher taxes on businesses will cause higher 
consumer goods prices. But it's really a matter of, of adding this burden to producers means there will be less production. So, so, and that of course harms consumers, that's what it does, but it doesn't harm consumers in terms of higher prices directly. Fascinating. The Natural Order asks, what advice would Per give his 17 year old self? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think be less afraid. So, I mean, even though a 17 year old would probably be much more short-sighted than uh, a 47 year old, like my current self, but I think in, in, in general, I mean, the problem now is that the internet doesn't forget, right? So if you do something nasty, then that might always haunt you. But trying things and trying things that might seem a little stupid or might seem a little risky or might seem like they don't have really much of a chance of being successful, that's really no harm in doing that. And if it is successful, that might be a, there might be a lot of upside. So, so that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, such small things as approaching someone whose work you appreciate or you like or something like that, just contacting them out of the blue, it's not strange. I mean, some people do this, most people do not. And of course, if you if you contact them and you call them bet call them names or something like that, that's that's a different matter. But if you actually appreciate their work and you want to have a conversation, most people appreciate that. So don't be afraid of doing that. Create your network and approach people left and right. It, it, it's actually a good thing if you do it respectfully and you have something to contribute in the discussion. I think we can take one last question from Twitter. Aaron asks a really interesting question. Please reconcile two competing arguments. One, inflation is degrading our quality of life, fiat architecture, food, science, etc. And two, we are far wealthier than ever before. Has there ever been a better time to be alive? A mixed bag? Is it that it could be much better than this uh, than it is today? Yeah, and that's. I mean, I understand where the question comes from. At the same time, there there is some economic illiteracy in the question, right? Because it's it's comparing the the present with past times where there might have been less inflation, right? So saying that, well, where in history had did we have a higher standard of living than today? Well, at no point in history, because the economy is cumulative, right? But that doesn't mean that we are at as high as we could have been. So <clears throat> without inflation, we would have been probably much, much richer than we are today. And we would have different solutions probably, because inflation, it, it benefits some types of investments at the expense of others. So maybe instead of having been to the moon in the 60s, maybe we would have cured cancer or whatever it might be, right? And then is it better or worse? Well, curing cancer might, might seem like it's obviously better, but it would have been investments in line with what consumers are expected to want rather than with prestige projects that the government would want, right? So I, I think, yes, we're currently as high as we have been. We're gonna get higher, hopefully, but it doesn't mean that we're even close to where we could have been. And that's, that's the accurate comparison in economics. It's always the, the current situation or where we otherwise would have been. So it's to, to use an example, uh, very often 
economists even, because they, they make the same mistake, they would say that raising the minimum wage will cause unemployment. Well, that's the wrong way of, of putting it, because that's not really what economics says. What economics says is that raising the minimum wage will leave us with, with fewer jobs in the future than we otherwise would have had. Right. So an example that I use in my classes is this Oklahoma State University is in Stillwater, Oklahoma, with like 40,000 people. So it's it's not a big town or anything like that. <clears throat> so say the the mayor or whatever, they, they say, oh, tomorrow we're going to have or next year or something, we're going to have a minimum wage at $100 an hour because we need people to be rich, not poor. Yeah, that's a typical idiotic argument, right? Well, are we going to look at just how many jobs were lost or created compared to before the minimum wage? Because what happens if Apple moves its headquarters to Stillwater, Oklahoma, before or during whenever this uh, minimum rate minimum wage increase happens, well, I'm sure a lot of people at Apple's headquarters will make more than $100 an hour, right? So maybe there are more people employed at $100 an hour minimum wage than before. So can we then say that, oh, the minimum wage created a lot of jobs? No, it didn't. Something else happened, right? So Apple moved to Stillwater. That's, that's one big deal. Right, it, create, it changes everything. The question is, without the minimum wage increase and Apple still moving to Stillwater, what would it have been like? Would there have been more or fewer jobs? Well, more because the minimum wage only does one thing. It prohibits jobs uh, that, that earn a low wage. So there would have been more. There would have been jobs below the minimum wage. But you have to compare compare the real with the counterfactual not the real at different times, because there's so much going on. Yeah, it goes back to the primacy of theory again. Exactly, yeah. I think that's a great place to end for today. Per, thank you so much for your time. I recommend everyone check out your short book, How to Think About the Economy, a Primer, which people can also find a free PDF of on Mises.org. And you're also one of the best econ accounts to follow on Twitter. We'll link all your stuff in the description. Thanks again. Thank you.